My collaborator today is Dakila Chungyalpa, who holds many titles from eco-feminist to environmental strategist. But my favorite is bridge builder, which is a large part of what she does with faith leaders through the LOCA initiative and what she did at the WWF Sacred Earth Program, which she founded in 2009. I met Dakila during my chaplaincy training in Santa Fe this past summer, where she gave an incredible presentation on what it means to be doing the work at this late, hot date for planet Earth. In this episode, she talks about the importance of countering the despair that inevitably comes up in the face of climate collapse and the healing role grief has to play in helping us tap into resilience. Dekula also totally goes there, pointing out the impact of capitalism, patriarchy, and other systems on what we are facing as a species. She talks about the importance of turning to women, particularly refugee women, single mothers, and indigenous women, to learn about what it is to adapt and survive. If you're looking for some support and courage in the face of climate change, Dekila's voice offers just that. Thank you so much for making time to collaborate on an episode of Everything is Workable, especially because I know you have a bazillion things going on in your life. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. I'm so glad we're reconnecting. I enjoyed our conversation so much when we met in Upayaf. So this is wonderful. Yay. Yeah. No, thank you so much. It's, it's always very exciting for me when I can land the kind of people I want to. For the Because <laughs> I tell people, I was like, everyone I want to interview is really busy <laughs> for good reason. <laughs> I think for me, the challenge is figuring out timing because I travel so much. And so there have been times where I'm literally across the country and, you know, really wanting to make it but not able to. But this isn't one of those cases. So I'm really happy. I'm so glad. So I always start off with this question, which is like very Buddhist. And often I try to rephrase it to be less Buddhist because I do interview a lot of people who aren't Buddhists, but you are. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm going to put it right out there in a Buddhist-y way. It's all inspired by the story of Katami and the mustard seed. That experience of moving from I am suffering to there is suffering. And I just really like to get a feel for what, what it was in someone's life, sort of like formative experiences or moments or touch points when you felt that shift. So I, you know, I, I mean, let me talk a little bit about, I suppose, my personal life. I suspect it's a little bit different than other people you've interviewed in the sense that I was raised in the Himalayas in this place called Sikkim in a family that's very strongly Tibetan Buddhist with a mother who chose to become a Tibetan Buddhist nun when I was around nine years old. And so I was raised in a context where Buddhist practice and the understanding of suffering and impermanence was just an everyday dialogue. You know, it was just a very big part of my upbringing. And my mother uh, made it just a part of my everyday life. You know, everything from philosophical debates about self-will and the meaning of reality and the meaning of emptiness to actually, you know, having to consider practical examples of people suffering around the world or or in our neighborhood and incorporate that into my practice. So in that sense, I think I had a very different upbringing than many people in the West, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm just thinking, like, we're going to discuss the meaning of reality and emptiness with our children. Yes, it, and it was very, it was really both wonderful and frustrating for me as a <laughs> child, you know. 
because of course I had to go to school and the school was just so different and really boring <laughs> in comparison, you know. Um, but I remember at a very young age when my mother would want me to meditate that I always chose to pick trees to meditate on and that I always wanted to be outside. It was just a very natural instinct, but also that I just had this... Um, when I thought of peace or whatever my mother described, you know, she would often try to explain what she was teaching to um, her students in much more simple, accessible ways to me. Because obviously I was much younger, but a lot of what she would explain when she described meditative bliss, I would try and say to her, that's what I experience outside. That's what I experience when I'm looking at trees. And so I think for me, it wasn't so much that focus on suffering as much as that focus on interconnectedness. And so gradually that expanded to understand that when a tree was cut down or fell down and the squirrels didn't have anywhere to go, that, like that cycle and understanding of there is suffering came from that. And then not so long after, you know, my mother, uh, she had raised me partially in a very remote part of Sikkim, in West Sikkim, particularly in this forest. And she had opened a school for children with some of her friends. And so I, I'd grown up in that context. But what I realized when I, by the time I was, I think, 11 or 12, was that where I'd been raised and we had moved away from, but where I'd been raised, there was a massive dam construction that was going to take place and it was going to displace a lot of the Lepcha, which is one of the indigenous communities in Sikkim, and other, it was going to raise down a sacred site. And, and all of the things that I understood in theory suddenly crystallized as real for me. Hmm. So to my family's consternation, I decided that I wanted to go to the hunger strike that was happening and I chose to sit there. And that was unheard of in, in my society and in my community, which was that you would not just sit and meditate on these concepts. You would do something about it. Mm -hmm. When I look back, I think that was my first experience of realizing there is suffering and then transforming that into some kind of action, you know, good or bad, positive or impactful or not. <laughs> but <laughs> but that, that process of realizing that something had to be done and then I wanted to be part of that something. So, I would say that it all came together for me. It wasn't it wasn't a singular experience. It was almost like I was building upon it was like a scaffolding and I was climbing it one at a time. Right. Yeah. It's it is really interesting as well that perspective of uh when a religion is actually your family upbringing like part of your family culture. Yeah. The the difference in how you relate to it. And it's, it's sort of like, it's like listening to people who are raised in a Christian. I wasn't raised in a Christian context. I listened to people who are raised in a Christian context and the point at which they made it personal for themselves or not. They like completely rejected it or that it was became their own thing where it was like, well, I have this ground. Do I want to work with that? Or do I need to shift over to something different? And like, mm -hmm. yeah, same but different. very, very interesting. So this podcast is called everything is workable and <laughs> <laughs> and i really started it out of this idea that when we when we can work with our minds we can approach any situation and i'm really good about like clarifying for people that workable doesn't mean fixable mm -hmm. that's really important and in the state of the world right now climate change climate collapse it feels pretty unworkable and I know for me, for a really long time, it's been something that I've been avoiding looking at. I'm like, it's there. I can't do anything about it right now. I'll just not look at my stress. 
until you came to Paya and gave your amazing class. <laughs> <laughs> and there were, there were so many things about that that are still really resonating for me. And thank you so much. You've given me lots to contemplate and practice with. <laughs> I'm so glad. <laughs> My suffering should have purpose. <laughs> <laughs> That was the great hope, isn't it? Um, and you you said this, it was really beautiful and it resonated for a lot of people actually because it came up often in our conversations later on in the week. You said to do climate change work is to be in a state of mourning and none of us can afford not to do climate change work. For me, it was just like, right, of course, I'm grieving or I need to grieve and I'm not letting myself grieve more accurately, actually. So I was wondering if you could just unpack that a little bit and talk about the role of grief as it mm-hmm. relates to climate change. I mean, I think it's, it, you know, my exploration of working with faith leaders and with religions in general actually came out of this personal experience of mourning and grief. I've been working in field conservation in Asia for many years when I realized that I was really in a state of despair. You know, and that was around 2007. I was really feeling this deep sense of loss and mourning and a sense of hopelessness. And uh, when I first began working with faith leaders, uh, you know, Tibetan Buddhist leaders in the Himalayas, that was the first time that that experience lifted for me, that that sensation lifted for me. And so I started doing a lot of research. And a few years later, I came across a paper by a philosopher called Glenn Albrecht on what he termed solastalgia, which is this experience of mourning for the environmental loss that we are seeing with our eyes and experiencing on a daily basis. And I also read, I had done a little bit of reading on philosophy, and one of the philosophers I really liked was Carl Jung. Mm -hmm. He's beloved to Buddhists, generally speaking. And he, he talked about this concept called anima mundi, which is that we have a tendency to think that our soul is within our body, right? When we imagine our identity and then we think of a soul of any kind that's attached to our sense of self, it's almost always something that's within our body. But actually what he talked about was flipping that, that we reverse the order and that we are within the larger soul. We as individuals are part of a much larger soul. And those two readings completely transformed what I was experiencing, the mourning and the grief I was experiencing. And it made me re-examine my grief and realize that, first of all, grief is not something to be shamed about. Mm -hmm. It's not static. It is actually a coping mechanism. Mm -hmm. And most importantly, it's a way of honoring what we've lost, right? If you look at who's grieving, you know, when it comes to climate change and ecological loss, you will find the people who are grieving are the ones who've lived closest to the land for whom land and water and all of the elements are alive. And the people who are not grieving are the ones who are privileged enough to not have lost these things. They, they are the ones who have regular access to water, who don't have to live or see even mountains of garbage, you know, who, ha- who get to breathe clean air. And I think one of the things for me around climate grief in particular is this understanding of just how much um, injustice there has been in general, around how climate change and ecological loss impacts us as societies. So even that process of recognizing who's grieving is a process of us understanding that we are part of this community of people who have lost something incredibly dear to us. 
Eve Ensler has talked about this before. Um, she's talked about it, I think, in the context of childhood abuse in particular. But for me, it also brings me back to the importance of naming things, right? Mm -hmm. How do we reconcile with the harm we have experienced or the harm we've caused if we cannot name that condition? How do we even reconcile or move forward, right? How do we repair that harm if there isn't a name for what we've done? Mm -hmm. But now that we know what, if what we're experiencing is eco-anxiety or, or climate grief, well, now we know that there is a term for it. It's valid. It's important, right? Mm -hmm. And most importantly, that we are not alone. And I think this, this is the most important piece. In the beginning, when I began speaking on this issue, I had a lot of friends and peers, especially in the scientist community, who were really uncomfortable that I was talking about this. It, it, I, earlier, I said grief is not shameful. And I say this all the time because actually, I think for many scientists, it felt shameful. It was like this big secret that we never talked about, that we, most people working on climate change and environmental issues, especially on the ground, were experiencing this decades ago. Because we could see what was coming and we felt helpless to change it. And yet, because of the way we study science and the way we are trained in, a, in the Western scientist model, being emotional means you're biased. And mm. so you learn not to be, it's not like you learn to be non-emotional. What you learn is to basically split your identity and suppress mm. the emotional part. And so mm. what you're doing is actually making things so much worse. Because not only are you not letting your grief air <laughs> and heal, like all wounds need to in open, what yeah. you're doing is really suppressing and denying the pain you're experiencing. And so when I realized that most of the pushback was coming from scientists who actually were experiencing grief, that's when I realized I have to talk about this every chance I get. <laughs> so, people, so people know they're not alone. You know, people feel like they're part of a community and everyone is sharing it. How else do we overcome it? How else do we heal from it, right? So... Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and the grief aversion really does come from that sense that how you feel is somehow irrational and what you think is rational, which is, you know, as a Buddhist, very funny to me. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, right. Yeah. My thoughts are rational. No, they're not. And sometimes yeah. my feelings are so rational. They're like, yeah, it's, it's amazing. And it was, it was so good. Like, it felt really validating to hear you say that because I was like, oh, right. I, yeah. I need to grieve and I'm not doing that. <laughs> yeah. And, and I also think, you know, I, I try to stage it so that people have time to experience it because definitely there are people, I would say, of, who, are, who identify with the male pronoun in particular, <laughs> who want to immediately turn it into action who are kind of socialized to fix things, right? Fix, fix, <laughs> fix. And so the moment they experience it, they want to shift the conversation to, well, how do we solve it? <laughs> and I think the importance of the experience of letting the grief sink in is really critical. You know, mm. it, it's a process of identifying. And like I said earlier, it's a process of honoring what mm. we value and what we love, Right sometimes moving fast and moving towards a solution just means that you're really running fast in, a, in the wrong direction. And sometimes I think it's really important that we pause and just slow down and take in what we've lost and kind of figure out how we won't make the same mistakes again. 
So let's say not go for the solution, which means that we are going to colonize a different planet. Yeah. (laughs) Having learned nothing really with the planet we have, right? (laughs) So for me, people who tend to want to jump over the grief and go into action, for me, uh, you know, part of my work is to challenge them to say, well, why can't you sit with this? Why Mm. can't you sit with the pain? You know, because... That is what is required. When it comes to healing, you cannot bypass the pain if you want to heal. Yeah, well, and it's like you know, my approach was to numb out around it, but that whole let's let's go straight into action is also another way of not actually grieving. <laughs> it's yeah. Just yeah. Like, <laughs> I'm still not going to look at it. I'm just going to throw solutions out there, and and exactly that of that so much of. Uh, of the issues about where we are right now is because of the short sightedness of humans. Like we're, we're not very good at thinking too far yeah. in the future. <laughs> yeah. And it's so seductive, right? It's so seductive to tell someone, okay, you know, touch it and say, I know this is painful and I have a solution for it. I mean, you know, that's every snake oil salesman, right? That's exactly what it is. It's like, it's so seductive to promise a solution when you identify a problem. But mm-hmm. part of the problem is that we actually didn't spend enough time experiencing the loss and sharing that amongst ourselves so that everyone's voices could be represented. Part of the problem is that we created these shortcuts in the process. Mm -hmm. And so if we want to do it better and we want to do it well, part of that is, uh, is a dialogue that needs to happen among the larger community. And there has to be a shift in terms of even identifying and recognizing who the real problem solvers are. Mm, yeah. And that actually is a really nice segue into the work that you do, because you work very closely with religious leaders and religious groups who are in places where they are working with the Indigenous community, where they are part of the Indigenous community. <laughs> this is one of those things about being able to see the complexity, right? And all that interconnectedness that you were talking about at the beginning. Because I feel like a lot of the time people will jump onto what the problem is, right? And so they're like, oh, capitalism's problem or colonialism is the problem or, and it's like, actually all those things kind of work together, right? And function together. So um, what's the question here? I didn't feel it. Um, (laughs) I guess it's like, what have you learned about being able to, express that complexity when you're working with people to say like in this pause let's take a moment to see how colonialism might be playing out in that impulsive need you have to go and colonize a different planet or to just get rid of humans from this space where they've actually been living for hundreds of years as if that will solve the problem so i've always felt that i had to be outspoken mm-hmm. not because I wanted to be. There were plenty of times that I was just sort of shivering in the bathroom before I knew I was going to say something in public that would go against the flow. Um, But because I felt that I was representing the people who weren't in the room, you know, Mm. whether it was women or whether it was women of color or whether it was indigenous people, whatever it might be, I, I just felt like the importance of representation is so key to everything I've ever worked on and what I want to continue to do in the future. Because what I see again and again is that when we bypass 
the process of engagement and dialogue and actual community problem solving, right? When we bypass that and we promise a solution that is easy to create and design, but that really starts and ends with power staying in a few hands. Mm. Um, I'm incredibly suspicious of solutions like that because what you're really doing is is promising something without changing the structure in any way, without changing the social systems in any way. And, you know, I, I know someone who constantly talks about how amazing it's going to be when that first spaceship gets to leave Earth. And I'm always like, what makes you think you'll be in that Earth spaceship? <laughs> what makes you think that any average person will be on that spaceship? That spaceship is going to be filled with the top 30, 40 richest people on Earth, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't help but feel tender for human beings because we have such a tendency to make ourselves the protagonist in every story. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, you know, whatever you see, whatever is being sold to us, we're like, yeah, because we, you know, it's like American dream, right? If you Mm -hmm. work hard, you're going to be a billionaire. You know, you read that book, you're going to, I mean, it's like, we are so willing (laughs) to believe (laughs) that the universe will work with us so that we get to beat the system. Mm-hmm. And the reality is that, you know, out of a million, 10 million, maybe one person does. And those are terrible odds, right? Those are horrible odds. And so it brings me back to the importance of actually understanding systems. It's fascinating to me, for example, now that the media is writing a lot about climate change, who it is um, that we are reading. I mean, so the latest piece I saw was Jonathan Franzen on New Yorker. Mm-hmm. And what I want to say as a woman of color is, I'm sorry, Jonathan Franzen cannot teach me a single practical thing about resilience that I don't already know. You know, <laughs> not only that, like, how is it that, for example, who I should be learning from is refugee women, right? Mm-hmm. Single black women who are mothers, single mothers, um, indigenous women, uh, mm-hmm. people who grow up under extenuatingly difficult circumstances, because these are all people who've already adapted and who are masters at adapting in adverse situations. These are the people who know what resilience is like, who have been building it painfully despite systems that are against them. So how is it that those voices are not present? How is it that we aren't asking these people to tell us, lead the way? What is a privileged white man who is a New York Times bestselling author going to tell me about a climate uncertain future that he is personally inured from and protected from? Yeah. So to me, that in itself, I mean, no, nothing against Jonathan Franzen, but that in <laughs> itself is, is fascinating to me. Who gets to decide who will be the example of fortitude and climate resilience that is then presented to the whole world? How do we decide that? And that, you know, if if that process is very top-down, is very privileged, and it's once again in the hands of a few, then that process is not representative and it's not truly resilient. Because the one thing we know about resilience, whether social or ecological, is that it has to be diverse. Okay, so resilience. (laughs) (laughs) This is something you talk about a lot. And I had a really interesting realization, actually, when, when we were at Opaya listening to you talk, that resilience isn't something that I have to cultivate so much as it's just something that I have to remember how to tap into. 
to start just because this is always really, this is something I, I find very important is to define the words we use and not assume people know what we mean when we say the words. <laughs> so how do you define resilience? So from an ecological perspective, resilience is basically the capacity of an ecosystem to resist damage, right? To resist or respond to any kind of, let's say, disturbance and to recover quickly from it. But I find it really interesting. So one of the reasons why I focus on resilience so much is because it's a term that spans several different areas. So, you know, psychology also refers to resilience, sociology as well. So psychologically, resilience is basically the ability to bounce back from adversity. But what I love about the psychological term is that resilience does not imply that we will be as we were. Mm. So basically, it doesn't say, you know, you're going to bounce back and you're going to be exactly where you were before that threat came along. What it says is you're going to survive it and you might not end up where you were. And I think that's really critical to understand when we talk about resilience work. So it's adaptation, right? Yeah. I think resilience is really that cushion that you have, right? Mm-hmm. That, that allows you to bounce back, that allows you to adapt, you know, that, uh, that springboard from which you can adapt in the face of any kind of trauma. And so I, I find that when I talk about inner resilience and community resilience, it's something that people understand very quickly on an intuitive level because they experience it and they see their communities um, for many, well, I would say, you know, I mean, we know it's changing because of urbanization, but that generally speaking, people are part of a community and they understand and have seen resilience in action. So whether it is, you know, a church that ends up being the the coordination hub during a disaster, right? Whether it is schools that basically a young person's life is centered around, whatever it might be, that example, people have seen it. And I think part of resilience work really is understanding and realizing that those points of strength already exist. Once again, we don't have to build a rocket from brand new, you know, (laughs) like we can fix where we are as opposed to trying to escape it in this pod, right? And so, so I think to me, those are the points that I always want to convey when I talk about resilience. Mm-hmm. Well, for me, like what I related it to and realizing it was something that I could tap into, I was like, of course I have resilience. I am a queer person in the world who went to junior high. I had to be resilient because that was the only option because the other option was to kill myself, quite frankly. <laughs> so yeah. I, I needed to be resilient. And so it's interesting, like what you're saying about who do we go to and who do we listen to? And it's so interesting that we listen to people who haven't necessarily had to adapt. They haven't had to bounce back. And they, I don't know, Jonathan Franzen's personal life experience and stuff. And I, I don't presume about the trauma someone's been through, but it is interesting to note, you know, that the people who are throwing a lot of money into building a rocket ship have a lot of money to throw into building a rocket ship. Yeah. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and, yeah. and it's fascinating to me too, because you know, I hear the term fragility all the time, right? If you're on Twitter or any kind of social media, oh God, we're constantly being bombarded with these terms. And it's fascinating to me that this idea that expressing pain, expressing grief, expressing any kind of sadness is considered to be negative, you know, Mm -hmm. that somehow expressing our vulnerability should be a point of shame when actually expressing your vulnerability is the first step to building your resilience. Mm -hmm. 
you know, it's the first step to understanding where, where the pain points are and how we heal them and then how we fill the gaps that exist, right? At an individual level, at a community level, social level, any way you think of it, it's necessary. And it's an important process of growth of evolution. And so it's always funny to me when, when people try to shame me or you know, when that happens in social media, because I'm like, ah, oh, bring it on. <laughs> and, and then the vulnerability part is interesting because that, I mean, that's a big part of the conversation these days now is how vulnerability is actually a sign of strength, like being willing to be vulnerable because it takes quite a lot of courage. So what have you learned about <laughs> what courage does in this work and the role that courage has to play? It's, it took me a long time coming, I have to say, um, you know, and this is the, the problem could be partly because I'm naturally optimistic, right? So I always was focused on making sure that I felt hopeful and that other people around me felt hopeful. And it's only in the last year or so listening to a lot of the, especially women activists and women leaders that I admire in the climate and ecological movements, that I started realizing that hope is just too passive mm. a term for for how people want um, other people to feel you know there were a lot of people especially women of color who are saying to me really is, is that all we're asking for is that people feel hope because hope isn't going to make them want to do anything you know they're just going to believe that someone it's someone else's problem mm. and so we we need to think about different ways of of getting people to act. And that was the first time, I think that last year was the first time I seriously examined how I felt about hope. And Joanna Macy has talked a lot about active hope and Joan Halifax, of course, talks about, um, I think it's wise hope, right? Mm -hmm. And so slowly I realized, well, I think the term that I like the most that I've heard other experts use and other leaders use is courage. Mm. Because courage means, courage requires action. Courage is looking at something that might not be fixable, as you said earlier, right? Um, how you describe the podcast itself. Mm -hmm. it, it, it might not be fixable, but it doesn't mean we're not going to try. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I think that's the distinction for me. So I find now that when I think about the purpose of, for example, the workshop you were at, when I think about the purpose of that workshop, ultimately for me, it was for people to connect with what's happening to the planet and feel a source of resilience within themselves and want to be part of resilience building and then to do it from a place of courage, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, it worked. Uh, I definitely feel <laughs> a sorry. lot more courageous in the face of climate collapse. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, and there's so many different ways that we can do it, right? There's so many mm -hmm. ways to nurture it within ourselves. I know I talked about how much I love trees. And for me, it always comes down to sitting, uh, you know, sitting, looking at trees or being in some kind of nature setting. But there are so many other ways. Like I've had people talk to me about feeling and experiencing courage watching their, their animals that they live with and thinking about interspecies interaction. Some people do it from their own religious practice, whatever that might be, right? Mm -hmm. I think one thing religion provides that we don't often see in a systemic kind of organized way is centering ourselves around gratitude. Mm. You know, and so that's something that I personally have gained a lot from working with religions and seeing that common theme in all religions, but also seeing the paucity and the lack of it in, in work settings and professional settings. 
there's almost a sense of entitlement when we talk about environmental climate work, sort of like our future is owed to us, right? And our future is being destroyed. And I definitely felt that way in my 20s and was extremely fueled by that energy. And what I look at now is, gosh, I'm so grateful to be alive. I'm in my mid-40s and for the most part, I can still lose myself in a wilderness area and in nature and be awed by just how magnificent it is, right? And that we, we are alive in this one planet, the only planet we know of right now in this entire universe that has this capacity to harbor life. Like, what a miracle. And so it immediately, when I, when I lose myself too much into the climate despair, I need to come back to that point of gratitude very much. Mm-hmm. And I, I think like how that connects to humility as well. Yeah. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> That's one thing no one can have enough of. <laughs> Definitely. So yes, I agree. <laughs> like because we have we have kind of like an there's this arrogance, and I, I mean the arrogance is a lot of what got us in the mess we're in. But then also in the way that we like we just flip it then and take that approach to climate change, and like there's so much yelling, <laughs> um, which comes back to that community building thing that you're talking about, and that gives me like wonderful question I want to ask then is who should people be listening to? Who are you listening to? Who are the like the community leaders or the groups or the organizations that you've found really help support you? Personally, I feel really blessed. I come from a, it's God, that sounds so trite. I'm so sorry. Hashtag blessed. <laughs> I, come from a, I come from a community that is still intact. My family still lives in a near a lot of nature. My culture tends to be matrilineal. My family still has a lot of female matriarchs. And so I've always felt really lucky because I've grown up with examples of women leaders all around me. And so for me, you know, I came to the U.S. when I was 15 to study. And of course, I went through a rigorous education in the West, but ultimately it didn't fundamentally change me and my belief system very much Mm -hmm. because I, I was so well protected and secure in my identity. And I think that's something that many Indigenous students don't get. A lot of the time what happens when you come to the West or when you encounter Western education is that you you lose that sense of self. I'm not saying it didn't happen to me, but that I was still able to hold on to my identity through it. So I feel really lucky because I've always had those voices, but over time, it's also those networks have expanded, right? So I see myself as having this really warm network and circle, especially of women leaders that I respect and admire women from First Nations, from Black communities, writers that I listen to and pay special attention to. And I just, I'm so unapologetically a feminist, right? Mm -hmm. I have many wonderful men in my life, including my husband, you know, including my boss. I have mentors who are male and so on. But ultimately for me, who I listen to first and foremost are women. And I think that's partly because, uh, I forget the name of the author, but someone said to me recently, paraphrasing this author, that there are two stories of humankind. One is of leaving home and the other is of coming home. And my instinctive reaction was to say, what nonsense, because what about the story of making home? Mm. You know, what we need right now in this moment of time, in this, while we face such ecological and climate crises, are women to be actually holding the narrative together of how we make the planet inhabitable again, how we make the planet and continue to have a planet be our home again. 
as opposed to escaping is as opposed to crashing it and running away, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> so yeah, so I have so many women I admire and listen to. I don't even know where to begin, but um, there are a couple of women that I really enjoy. That I really enjoy their writing and Mary Hegler comes to the top of my mind because she would fit so perfectly with the theme of this podcast. Catherine Heo is another person that comes to mind. Oh, there's so many. Yeah. <laughs> Once I start, I wouldn't be able to stop. Of course, Joan Halifax that I can think of. You know, Arundhati Roy. I mean, it just goes on and on. So basically, people should just go to your Twitter and see who you follow. And <laughs> I'm one of the few people who probably really enjoys Twitter because I follow very cool people. <laughs> yeah, um, my wife is teaching me this practice. She's like, you just have to only follow cool people and then it's not yes. scary to go on Twitter. <laughs> Yes, that's how I feel. But I have to say I'm a little bit, um, to talk about not having courage, I don't really engage in the negative conversations. I really admire the people who do. Gosh, I'm so grateful for them <laughs> because they take on the trolls and the people who are willfully causing strife, right, on Twitter. I personally try not to engage. Every once in a while, I break that rule, but mostly. <laughs> well, it's, you know, it's good, healthy boundaries and knowing what your limits are. Yeah. Resilience. Part, what yeah, you need yeah exactly. Exactly. Part of staying <laughs> healthy and resilient for me is to not. Having said that, I mean, you know, a lot of my work is to connect with people that you superficially think wouldn't, we wouldn't agree, right? So maybe that's partly why I, because I work with so many people and build bridges with people that superficially I don't have very much in common with. <laughs> I just don't want to do it on social media. You're doing it in real time, in, in meat space, as it's <laughs> called, <laughs> face to face. Um, so this show, as with like all the projects that I do in my life, is supported by patrons. And one of the perks of being a patron is that when I get to interview someone super cool and awesome like you, I let them know and invite them to uh, submit questions to me. So I got a question for you about tech and the tech industry, specifically because the tech industry doesn't really have any good framework of ethics. You know, it sort of happened. And now with tech classes and stuff, that's not something that's included in it, um, ethics. And and yet tech is also like this booming industry, one of the few that isn't being impacted in a really detrimental way by economics and global strife. And so it has a lot of money behind it. There's these tech leaders with all this money that they're putting into things like building rocket ships. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so the question is, given that this is an industry with that kind of financial capacity to fund a lot of the issues that we're facing on the planet, what kind of possibility would you see for faith leaders influencing and working with leadership in the tech industry? Oh, wow. This is, I have to say, this is so out of my area of expertise. I do know of faith leaders that have been invited to advise on different projects. So without naming any names, because that's not my place, I have been in the room when a couple of conversations happened around social platforms, especially addressing teen suicide, for example. And so I know that there are avenues of dialogue between faith leaders and tech industry. I think what would be really interesting is if there were dialogue around ethics in general, because I think, like you said earlier, tech is one of those industries that just has zero oversight. Everybody is scrambling after the fact, there aren't even laws in place a lot of the time for what's happening in tech. I still remember being really affected when someone I 
follow on Twitter ended up ex- talking about their experience of going to the local policeman and saying that they had been threatened on Twitter and the cop didn't know what Twitter was. And this was like five, eight years ago. But sort of for an everyday society, tech is just not something that even registers as the real world. Mm-hmm. And so it creates a kind of wild, wild west sort of, you know, mentality. I do think at some point there has to be oversight, ethical oversight in particular. I always wonder what it means that Google took away their do no harm tag that they had for a long time. Um, I know about that. <laughs> yeah. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I definitely see that. I do think faith leaders should be, should have a voice and a stake in it. However, I'm not sure that they are the primary voice that matters. Because for the most part, at least the faith leaders I work with, they're not very savvy on social media. Mm-hmm. You know, their their work, as far as they're concerned, their vocation is outside in society, is the interpersonal relationships that they have in their community. But the importance of oversight and having, again, going back to this issue of representation is key to me. If tech exists to better a few people and to keep power in the hands of a few, then that is not in any way a benevolent industry. And yet we do think of tech as primarily being benevolent, don't we? We think this is mostly a good thing, and it has been for many of us, but at what cost? And, and I think that is a conversation that has to been more and more in the larger community. I'm also reading right now Anand Kiritaras. I don't know if you've read him. He has a book called Winner Take All, which is a real searing indictment of um, the philanthropy world and how much of that money comes from tech. So it's also a really interesting um, way of seeing things, which is how do we justify the good and how do we justify what we do when we only look at the good, right? We have to also examine, the criteria has to also include the impacts that we didn't intend, but that were negative anyway. Mm-hmm. And I think that just doesn't happen enough in tech. And I'm sorry this answer is so general. <laughs> no, it's good. I think it's because, it, because it's a, an interesting question that comes up around where people are like, well, why is it that these, because like the wealthiest people are wealthy because of tech and then people will talk about like, wow, they could throw that money at this environmental issue here and fund this thing and make something happen. And yet that's not happening and why not? And mm-hmm. It's, it is, it's, it's looking at those interlocking systems and going, well, there, because as long as we're still functioning under a largely capitalist model around the world, we're still functioning around whoever has the most money wins. Mm-hmm. And also <laughs> that I think we're very slow to catching up to the fact that the model is still mining resources, raw resources. It just happens that the raw resources are our individual intellectual property. Mm. We're still not catching up to that, which is why I mentioned the Wild West, because that mentality hasn't changed. You know, you're still going out there mining for gold in a clear indigenous communities and you're still going to settle and you're still going to destroy the habitat and do all those things. But the gold this time is our intellectual property, our individual knowledge. It's basically everything we're handing over for free for t- in exchange of a free email, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> or, or finding out, like, were we really an Egyptian princess? You know, do we? Oh, yeah. <laughs> in, our, in our family line, right? I mean, so it's, it's, fa- it's really, um, it's fascinating to me. It is. It really is. So um, my last question is, it's less of a question. It's more just that I always invite my guests to offer anything that they'd like to, to listeners 
who are doing this kind of work or coming from a similar place or just starting to embark on this kind of work. So just think of it as a place where you can offer anything that you, you didn't feel like you got to say that you really wanted to say or that you think would be helpful resources, ideas, practices. It is an open space for you. Thank you. Um, so, you know, I'm fairly liberal, I'd say as probably quite liberal. And politically, I don't always have a lot in common with the people I work with who are from different religious backgrounds from me or even political backgrounds from me. However, instead of starting the conversation with what we don't agree on, I just had one principle, which is let's start talking about what we agree on. And what I found over time, and this isn't, it might sound touchy-feely, I really don't want it to, but it might, is that what I found over time is that most people are good. Most people are compassionate. Everybody cares about life on earth. I have never been turned away by a faith leader. And that includes every religion you can think of. Um, evangelicals, Muslim, Baha'i, Christian, you know, Buddhists, you name it. Ultimately, for a religious person, what they care about is life on earth. What I had to learn was that I had to change my vocabulary and my language so that we could understand that we could have a common language. So, for example, instead of saying biodiversity, if I say creation, it makes all the difference. We understand each other better. And that's the purpose of language. Going back to this point that I made earlier about how everyone is compassionate and good. I know it makes people uncomfortable, including my own friends and my dear ones, right? There is a tendency that we want to believe that the other side is evil, especially right now in these like deeply polarizing times. What has helped me a great deal is to see that at an individual level, these people are compassionate. They're compassionate to their children. They're kind to their parents, maybe. Not all of them. I mean, we definitely know people who are frightening. But out of 100 people, let's say 98 of them are going to be compassionate and good. What really differentiates us to me is, um, so I'm going to use the language of social identity theory, it really is the in-group and the out-group. It's that who you feel responsible for and who you feel you're caring, the, the circle that you care for. Um, that is really what's crucial. For some people, it might just be their family. For some people, it might be their religious group. We see that during times of disaster and crisis that people's in-group completely changes. Mm -hmm. Whoever survived ends up being a team. And so it's a very courageous, hope-giving learning experience for me to understand that actually my work is not to convince someone to be more compassionate. My work is not to convince people that they should be kinder or they should be better people. My work is to convince them that the in-group they have could be larger mm. and could be more porous. The moment I think in that way, it, it takes off a lot of the burden in my mind. And I offer it to your listeners with that motivation, which is that when we think of it in those black and white terms, and when we decide someone is good or evil, we're creating these unbreakable identities that we then are unable to penetrate ourselves. It's like we've created a completely win-lose scenario. Mm -hmm. However, if you can see it from their point of view, what often happens is that what you see is just that their in-group might be really small. Their in-group might be who they survive on on a day-to-day -day basis or their church community or even their race, their nationality, whatever that is, right? And then that allows you space to play with. That allows you space that you can work on. That allows you space to build a bridge. And that's mm -hmm. the best thing we can do. And then the last thing I want to say really 
from the bottom of my heart is you don't have to do everything to solve the climate crisis or the ecological crisis or any other issue you care about. You really don't. Just do one thing. What we know for sure is that even six minutes in nature will bring down your heart rate, it changes your mood, it makes you feel more hopeful, it makes you feel more optimistic about the future. Be out in nature and do it with community. That's that's the one thing you can do. <laughs> that's so wonderful. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. It was so nice to speak with you. <laughs> To learn more about Dekila Chinyalpa's current project, which is known as the Loka Initiative at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, visit centerhealthyminds.org slash loka, L-O-K-A dash initiative. To connect with Dekila, go to Twitter and follow her at D. Chungyalpa, C-H-U-N-G-Y-A-L-P-A. I'm incredibly grateful to my many patrons, without whom I could not make my practice the focus of my time and attention. Immense appreciation to Gretchen Wagner, Julian and Shannon Hatch, Winita Budgen, Margaret Prescott, Val Delane, Perry Pugh, Annika, Jennifer Harkness, Katie Bredbeck, Laura Mulkern, Michelle Puckett, Sierra Love, and Chrissy Bird. Patrons help me to cover the cost of producing this podcast, but also make it possible for me to do outreach for my chaplaincy, buy art supplies, and have focus time for writing. Visit CaitlinSCHatch.com to see the breadth of my work in the world. The original theme song for this podcast was created by award-winning singer-songwriter Tajai Moore of Moore Music. 